If you will join me, please, this morning in the Gospel of Luke. We will be in chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. This morning we are looking at verses 13 through 35. The title of our sermon is Burning Hearts, and our keywords for our worshipers and training are Emmaus, Prophets, and Appear. Now, I've had several times in my Christian life, and I'm hoping you've had the same, where I've heard the scriptures explained or have had a theological concept unpacked for me as I was reading something very helpful and profound, or I heard a very powerful and insightful sermon, and I just had this huge sense that a whole new world has been opened up to me. When I'm brought to understand another aspect of the truth of God and, and his word, and it, it just blows me away, that's a, that's a powerful experience that we get to have as Christians. There have been times that I've just been absolutely shaken by something I've learned from God's word. There have been things I've learned about God himself that have rattled me big time. There have been discussions I've had with other people where something about God's word is spoken in a way that I'd previously not considered or there was otherwise some kind of blindness where it was then removed and all of a sudden I could see something a lot more clearly. Now when we first become Christians, that's most often the case and, and we have some level of experience like that. But What about once we are Christians walking with the Lord day by day? I hope we still have those experiences. Where we're kind of left feeling like we've had a greater encounter with God through his word. Because we recognize that we've not tapped the Bible for all it's worth. As we continue to dig and to learn and to grow through God's word, I hope we're gaining more and more knowledge and wisdom and insight and that as we do, that we're just amazed at God and all of these wonderful and sometimes shocking moments of discovery that he gives to us. Now, as I was thinking about that, I sort of tried to imagine if these things came about because I was in a Bible study or a small group where Jesus was leading. How often do you think we would have those experiences then? Well, in this passage we're going to look at this morning, this is the very thing that happened with two disciples because Jesus came and he taught them the scriptures for several hours and then in the end they were struck with this reality that they're not understanding the Bible rightly before. But now, having heard this powerful and life-altering truth, when the scriptures were communicated to them, they realize all along that while they knew what the Bible said, they didn't understand it. But here they're transformed, and they know it. Now, it's important for us to recall the context as we come to this passage. Jesus has died, and last week we looked at uh, the fact that after three days he had risen from the tomb. 
He was resurrected from the dead. Remember, the women went to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body, and he wasn't there. Peter, upon hearing this news, ran to the tomb, and he too saw that Jesus was not there. And remember, all of them were very confused at first, but then they were reminded of what Jesus had said about being delivered into the hands of sinful men to be crucified and on the third day rise again. So they moved from being confused to being illumined to the truth, and then they were amazed and they had to tell others about it. So we ended last week looking at verse 12, Peter having seen what the women had reported was true, and he went home marveling at what had happened. But remember, we have a few women, and we have Peter, and they're convinced of the resurrection, but the other disciples didn't believe it, or at least they were very confused, and they didn't know what to make of it. Remember, the women came bursting through the door, to tell the others about what they had seen. And the disciples, hearing all this, said, this is just an idle tale. It can't be real. So now Luke is going to unfold for us in our passage today. Another encounter. This time, Jesus has a direct encounter with two disciples after his resurrection. And in Luke's gospel, this is the first instance recorded of Jesus interacting with anyone after the resurrection. Now, before we jump into the text, I want to point out one more thing. We know that Luke is the author of the book of Acts as well. And just like the Gospel of Luke, he wrote Acts to Theophilus. So we can think of Luke and Acts really together. It's just a continuation of the story. Now, in the book of Acts, Luke tells us that Jesus was around for 40 days after he was resurrected. Why is this significant? It's significant because Luke is a historian. And no doubt, he tells us at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, that he had gathered as much eyewitness testimony and information and facts and accounts that he could before compiling these works for his friend Theophilus. And so why is it of all that he gathered that he decided that this instance was the most important out of those 40 days of interaction Jesus had with others. We have to assume that this encounter with these two disciples is very important. And so we have to ask the question, what does the passage teach us? What are we supposed to learn from this? It's not just that Jesus is risen, but what now in light of that fact? And I'm going to give you the ending up front, and then we'll work through the passage. What we're going to see is a spiritual blindness that is based upon false assumptions. When we believe the wrong things, we're going to be looking for the wrong results. And so ultimately, all that we can find is hopelessness and despair. Now Jesus teaches these disciples, and in doing so he's teaching us, that rightly understanding the truth of God's word is critical to us having hope and assurance and an eye on right expectations. So let's begin in Luke 24 and verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So here we have two disciples. They're on a seven-mile journey from uh, Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now one, we learn in verse 18, is named Cleopas. And the other one didn't have on a name tag, so we don't know who that is. Now some commentators suggest that perhaps this is Cleopas's wife, which is as good a guess as any, but we really don't have any idea. So along the way, they're having this conversation about all that has happened, all that they heard from these women, all they heard from Peter, all of the new buzz on the street about Jesus, the empty tomb. No doubt these two were still in great despair, just like the other disciples we saw last week. They were confused. They were heartbroken. They were in a very real sense like sheep without a shepherd in their minds. But they were most certainly very perplexed. An empty tomb? Angels? What's going on here? Luke tells us, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So imagine you have these two walking and they're discouraged and they're downcast and they're talking about all that they had heard. They're very perplexed by all of these instances and they don't know what to believe And seemingly out of nowhere, someone arrives from behind and begins to talk to them. But remember this, Luke tells us in verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And so in the first part of the passage, we see that Jesus appears to the disciples as a stranger. Along the way, there's going to be five different ways that the disciples see Jesus. But the first one is this, that Jesus appears to them as a stranger. I look at verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us, They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Now Jesus moves here from being a stranger to being an inquirer. And I really love this dialogue here because I can't help but think that Jesus is sort of having a good time with the disciples here. What are you guys talking about? Who's this Jesus you are mentioning? What did he do? What's going on? His questions are asked in such a way that the disciples say, are, are, you, 
you clearly are not from around here because everyone is talking about this. There's sort of a buzz about it. I can imagine being able to put on a really good disguise and walk around asking people their opinion of me. I don't want to do that. (laughs) Ignorance can be bliss sometimes. Imagine, though, being on the other end of that. Imagine a stranger coming up to you, asking questions about someone else. You just unload your thoughts about them only later to find out that that person that you were talking to was them. So the disciples are carrying on this conversation about Jesus, with Jesus, and they don't even know it's him. Now, notice that Luke gives us a very clear picture of these disciples in verse 17, what they were like at that time. He says, and they stood still looking sad. Can you picture that in your mind? They're, they're talking together. A stranger shows up and asks them what they're conversing about. And they are struck with sadness all over again because they are recalling all that's happened over the last several days. They looked sad, Jesus tells us. Why were they so sad? They were thinking of life and discussing life that is lived and death that has died without the reality of resurrection. They hadn't fully comprehended resurrection yet. They were just looking at their lives, at Jesus' ministry, at Jesus' life and death. And at this point, as far as they could tell, death was the end. It was Jesus' end. It would be their end And it seemed like that was it. Life and death without resurrection. How do we think about that in this world? Well, we've certainly had quite a display of that over the last week and what that looks like in the minds of people. So no surprise to any of us, just this last week, Robin Williams, comedian and actor, committed suicide in his home. It's a very sad, it's a very tragic event. It's something a lot of people have talked about and Christians have talked about it. And with regards to depression, this is a very serious thing that we need to be open about and be talking about. And I seriously hope this is an eye-opener to people who have depression, that this is a real thing that we need to be concerned about. And sometimes tragic results are there. It needs to be taken seriously. But something really telling has come out about all of the discussions about Williams's suicide and this articles I've been reading. Even the most irreligious people in the world are some of the first to make claims that their beloved friend and colleague has gone on to a better place. People have said things like, rest in peace, and in reference to his role as the voice of the genie in the Disney movie Aladdin, they've said, Genie, you are free? Or because he struggled for many years with substance abuse and depression, they said, now he is free from the pain. Now listen, I want to be very clear and say that we do not know the spiritual condition of Robin Williams at the time of his death. He was a very funny man. He was a wonderful actor, and I've appreciated much of his work and his philanthropy. But there's no way for us to know definitively that he did not repent of his sin and trust in Jesus. And just to be clear, this is off topic, but it's very important. There is absolutely no evidence in the scriptures that those who commit suicide go to hell because they've committed suicide. 
I have no doubt that genuinely converted brothers and sisters can find themselves in various situations beyond any sense of hope, and they end their own lives sadly. That doesn't reject the fact that it is sin and it is a bad choice, and sadly in this case, this was his end. But I bring this up because it points to this very real reality. That in this world, a people, even without Christ, even without a theology of a resurrection, think in terms of resurrection. And a great commentary, I read this last week from Todd Pruitt on all of this, said this. The blunt but ultimately liberating truth is that there is no freedom, no peace, and no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. We do not serve the cause of Christ or further the joy of man by speculating on how Robin Williams may have him rolling with laughter in heaven. His death is a tragedy, but not because there will be no Mrs. Doubtfire too, but because the peace that apparently escaped him in his life may now eternally be beyond his reach. And here's my point. Even those who reject Christ and Christianity cannot conceive of death being the end without some kind of resurrection. Every now and then, some will claim that in death, that that's just the end and we turn to dust and that's it. But even they certainly wonder, what if? What if I'm wrong? And, and, And why would that be the end? Why the thought that death sets someone free, that the end of despair in this life comes from no longer being here and living here on this earth? And anybody who looks and thinks and discusses life without a resurrection and thinks about it, anybody who looks at this life and says, this is all there is, there is no eternity, there isn't anything else, their lives will be filled with absolute despair. And it will do what it did for these two disciples when Jesus asked the question. It will stop you in your tracks. You'll be sad. You'll feel lost. You will feel alone. So you either make up some concept of your mind of what life will be beyond the here and now, or you'll embrace the reality of the resurrection and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ alone. What do people say about Christians all the time? those who aren't Christians. Really, it's said about religion in general, but it's almost always most certainly applied to Christians and ironically is the most nonsensical application of them all. The irreligious will say, well, religion is just a leap in the dark. There's this leap of faith that has to take place, but it's in the dark. But here's why this doesn't apply to Christianity. When Jesus asks what's going on to these two disciples, what do they tell him? They're talking about an empty tomb. They're talking about great miracles that Jesus has done. They're talking about incredible claims. But they're talking about all of these witnesses who have seen Jesus around. They say in verse 19, he was mighty in word and in deed. His great claims, his great miracles, the empty tomb, the witnesses of the resurrection. They said, if you haven't heard these things, you must not even be from around here. 
So what should that tell us? Well, if you were anywhere around Jerusalem at that time, you knew these things. The evidence was irrefutable. It was such common knowledge that if you were anywhere around Jerusalem, you knew about the miracles, you knew about the tomb. And even the enemies couldn't deny the basics. In fact, 25 years later, in Acts chapter 26, Paul's defending Christianity before Festus and Agrippa. Festus was this pagan Gentile ruler and Agrippa was a Jewish king. And Paul brings these same things up. He says, there was a man who claimed to be God who went everywhere doing good. He did public miracles. He raised people from the dead. He walked on water. He fed 5,000. And when he died, his tomb was empty. Nobody could find the body and dozens of people saw him raised from the dead. And so Festus, the pagan says, Paul, your great education has made you mad. You're crazy. And so how does Paul respond? Well, he turns to the Jewish king, Agrippa, and he says, I'm not insane, Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. And as he's talking to Agrippa, this Jewish king, he says, the king, he, he's familiar. He's familiar with these things. I can speak freely about them. I'm sure none of this has escaped his notice, for these things were not done in a corner. There's no secret. And he's looking at this Jewish king who's, who's trying to accuse Paul of speaking things that are not true. And he's saying, you know these things are true. You know about the empty tomb. You know about all of the sightings. You know about the miracles. You cannot deny them because you are around. And Agrippa, he can't respond at all because he knows the truthfulness of Paul's claims. Now, today's enemies of the cross will deny it all and say, who knows if there's a God? Who knows if Jesus ever rose from the dead? Who knows if there was this empty tomb? But at the very least, in Jerusalem, during the first century, nobody could deny it and be considered credible. It was, the, it was that obvious to everybody. It was irrefutable. Everybody knew about it. Are you a stranger and don't know about this? Well, even Agrippa couldn't deny it, even though he probably wanted to. That's incredible evidence. Let me tell you what is a leap of faith. To look at a life without a resurrection and without an eternity. It's to say, when you die, you rot. We're just grown-up human germs. We've just evolved. And when you die, you rot in the ground, and that's it. That is... A leap of faith. No eternity? No resurrection? Because on top of that, the very same people will say, we have to treat people as though they're valuable. We have to believe in human rights. We have to care for the oppressed. We have to be tolerant. Well, talk about a leap of faith. If your origin is insignificant, if your destiny is insignificant, have the guts to admit your life and all the lives of others are insignificant. That's an incredible leap in the dark. You can't move around feeling like life is significant if you don't believe in eternity, unless you just don't think at all. So here we have these two sad disciples because they're thinking of life not in light of a resurrection, but simply in light of death. And they're stunned by all that has happened And they seem to be in great despair without hope. And so Jesus asks them what's going on. They talk about it. It all comes out. 
but they don't see what you and I can already see. And Jesus is about to turn their world upside down. Let's look, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So now Jesus moves from being a stranger to being an inquirer, and now he is a teacher. And he does it in a real touchy-feely way, doesn't he? Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. Uh, Don't you just picture them standing there, their heads are down, maybe tears in their eyes, very sad, pouring out their hearts to this guy they don't even recognize, and then he comes back with that. But what does he do? He begins this seven-mile Bible study. Luke tells us he began with Moses and all the prophets, and all along the way he's pointing out what has been said about himself. Jesus probably brought them to Genesis 3.15. He's pointing out God's promise to raise a seed of woman who would crush the head of the serpent and, and be the salvation of mankind. He points to the law and the sacrificial system, and it's pointing to the fulfillment in the true lamb who was slain once and for all. He showed them all the types and the shadows that he could, the departure from Egypt to the promised land, a picture of a Christian's departure from slavery to sin and death to enter into the promised land of heaven. He showed that there was Adam and Moses and the ark and David, all types of Christ, pointing to the second Adam who would make all things right. Surely he went to Isaiah and he talked about the sheep being led to the slaughter, being smitten and stricken and afflicted. And all along the way, Jesus is showing them from God's promises to bring about salvation to lost sinners and how it was going to be accomplished in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He paints this picture for them of the entire Bible because quite clearly they had missed it. They very likely knew the scriptures well, but in knowing the individual stories and laws and prophecies, they had missed the big story altogether. Now, brethren, it it is possible to have a Bible and to be able to talk about the scriptures in a fairly intelligent way and yet miss the point altogether. It's so easy to read the scriptures and not see that they're about Jesus. And yet everything is screaming at us, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, trust in Jesus. And yet many will read the scriptures and study the scriptures and miss it entirely. Just think of the Jewish people. They have the same text that Jesus is going through with these disciples on the road to Emmaus, and yet they're blinded completely to reality. Think of so much of what passes as Christianity today. So often, the point is missed. Look, the Bible wasn't written to give you five simple ways to improve your marriage, to keep on good financial footing. It wasn't written to give you something to put on coffee mugs or to clip out and hang in your cubicle. 
Now think of all the sermons you've heard in your lifetime and all the comments you've read and all the posters and bumper stickers you've seen that all miss the point entirely. It is easy to do. Does the Bible speak on marriage and finances? Of course. Is it okay to print these things out and be encouraged by them? Absolutely. But for many, it stops there. But Jesus' point with these disciples is, are you so foolish as to not see this? It's right here in front of you. What? What is it? Think about having Jesus lead your Bible study or your small group. And then he asks a question and you say, well, I think this is what the text means to me. And Jesus doing exactly what he does here and says, well, how about we just stick to the text? Look, he's not very gentle here, is he? He says, Basically to Cleopas, you see, the problem is that you're just a little stupid. You're slow. How can you not see this? And look, if I were Jesus, I would have just said, hey, dummies, it's me. (laughs) It's Jesus. It's all about me. I'm right here. But he doesn't do that. Why? He's very concerned that his disciples see it and understand it and know it from the word of God. Jesus is pointing them to the reliability and the truthfulness of God's word before he points them to the reality that it is he himself. He's pointing them to a place where it's not enough to just say, I love Jesus and he loves me. He's showing them the importance of growing each day in our knowledge of God and in all that he's given us in his word, or else we're going to miss the point. As the incognito Christ was expounding the scriptures, the two had come to see the plausibility and indeed the necessity of the passion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Now they begin to understand why the tomb is empty. And I think they were divinely kept from recognizing Jesus so that they would base their understanding of the resurrection solely on the scriptures and not their experience. Now they don't just go around saying, well, we know Jesus rose from the dead because he told me so. God told me. No, God's word tells me, and here's where. And here's how we know it's true. And oh, by the way, Jesus showed this to us. You see, a privileged experience such as this, if it's not grounded in the word, it runs the danger of becoming this private, eccentric interpretation. But now these two in the road, they're they're not in that danger anymore because their belief in the resurrection rests solely on the scriptures where they were shown that Christ is all throughout. So Jesus is a stranger to them, but then he's an inquirer. He starts to ask questions, but then he's a teacher, and he teaches them that the Bible, from start to finish, is all about him. What happens next? Look at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. 
When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. So they arrive at the end of their journey and the two urge Jesus to come in. And the word here conveys the idea that it's this very forceful insistence. And we can understand, can't we? So Jesus is moving from a teacher now to be a guest. And he comes into this house as a guest. And the table's set and dinner is ready and they all sit down to eat. But something really odd happens in verse 30. Jesus is the guest, but almost immediately he becomes the host. You see, when Jesus comes as a guest, he doesn't stay a guest very long. He becomes the head of the household. He becomes the host. And he does what a host does immediately here in verse 30. He sits down, he grabs a loaf of bread, he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he hands it to others. And the very act of breaking that bread is very significant because what is he showing? Many believe that they recognize who Jesus was in his breaking of that bread because they saw in that moment his hands, his nail-pierced hands. And that may very well have been. If nothing else, the breaking of bread Jesus had done many, many times throughout his ministry. He did it for 5,000. He did it at the Passover table in the Last Supper with his disciples. Whatever it was that they saw, this was a very clear gesture of self-revelation. That's why he did it, to give them a clear knowledge of who he was all along. You think their eyes got big? (laughs) Perhaps they sat straight up, their hearts began to race a bit. Surprise, Cleopas. Surprise, other disciple, we don't know your name. Surprise, Emmaus, surprise, world, Christ is risen. He's risen. Christ is risen. And at that very moment, this is etched in their minds forever. Christ is not in the grave. He's alive and he's with us. He's among us. He's feeding us. He's serving us. He's teaching us. He's growing us. Christ is risen. And now they knew. They had experienced. And immediately, end of verse 31, he vanishes from their sight. He was gone. But what's going on in their hearts? Look at at the end of this passage, verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us to the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Remember, they were so concerned that it was getting late, so Jesus needed to stay. It was too dark to travel on this dangerous road. But now they're going to go back to Jerusalem They wanted to tell everyone about it. They found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together. They made a seven-mile journey back, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Their hearts burned within them. They were filled with absolute joy in all that they had experienced. Their sadness, their despair completely vanished. Their assurance was now very strong. 
But again, we have to remember it wasn't just because they saw Jesus, it was because they knew this was true from the word of God. And it's when the scriptures come alive in your soul with the centrality and the reality being that Jesus Christ is what it's all about. You see, before they were spiritually blind. They made false assumptions about what Jesus was supposed to do and who he was supposed to be. They even made known their assumptions back in verse 21, right? They said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They thought he was going to become their king and overthrow the Roman government. They were spiritually blind to the scriptures. Everything they already knew was based on a false assumption. And so they were down and broken. When we believe the wrong things, we're going to look for the wrong results. And the only thing that remains is hopelessness and despair. And so Jesus taught the disciples on the road to Emmaus the right way of understanding the word of God. An understanding that puts Christ front and center. Right in the middle of it all. And in it all, we have to have this understanding. It is crucial that we understand Christ at the center of all of the texts of the Bible so that our assurance is rightly rooted, that we have an eye on things that we can expect. Why? Because Christ has risen and is alive. Truth matters, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? And not just truth, but our understanding of that truth and the expectations that it creates. I want to make something very clear that Jesus pointed out to the disciples. If you're studying the Bible and your understanding of the text does not include Jesus as the central figure of that text, you are missing the point entirely. Yes, even the Old Testament. That's the Bible that Jesus was using with them. The Bible is centered on Jesus, and so we ought to work to see how Jesus is central in every text that we look at. It's the very thing he taught his disciples that day. It's the very thing he's teaching us. So the two didn't stay long in Emmaus. Luke said that very hour, they rose up, they returned to Jerusalem, and they went back the seven miles. They just finished the walk. They get a quick bite to eat, and then they're back on the road. And when they got there, they're confronted with more news. Peter has seen Jesus also. And they would all see Jesus again later that evening. Luke doesn't record that encounter. But for now, they were all beginning to grasp this very wonderful truth. This was the beginning of what would become known as the Fellowship of Burning Hearts, a group of disciples and apostles that would bear witness to Christ to the entire world. Well, what about us today? What does this mean for us? At a minimum, we can conclude the importance of knowing God's word rightly with Christ at the center of it. We also need to come together. We need to talk about the word of God. We need to study the word of God. When does Jesus show up? Did you notice in this passage? He shows up when they're talking about him. They don't know much, obviously. They they know what the text says. They don't know what it means. But the two disciples get together. They're very concerned. They're very confused. It doesn't seem like they're helping each other very much. But Jesus tends to show up when we get together. Don't think about these things all by yourself. 
Don't struggle with your guilt. Don't struggle with your doubts about Christianity. Get with some other people and let's talk about it. Talk about Jesus. Go to a small group. Come to church. It's in the breaking of bread. It's in discussion. It's in fellowship. It's in community. When Jesus shows up and teaches his people his word, that's where he will make himself known. That's where he can and does make himself known. Now, some of you here this morning are not right with God and your brokenness and your sin are keeping you from seeing what is clear about Jesus. You're spiritually blinded. You cannot grasp the great reality that the Lord Jesus is risen indeed. The scriptures call you to repent of your sin and to trust in God that he would remove the blindness from your eyes that you might walk in the newness of life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a blessed hope because our Redeemer lives. We have no reason to be sad. We have no reason to be downcast. We have no reason to despair because we have the hope of the resurrection. And as we reflect on Jesus' resurrection this morning and consider all that has been possible in our hopes and assurance because of his resurrection... We have the privilege of celebrating the thing that brought about Jesus' resurrection this morning. His life in perfect obedience. His death in the place of sinners. His body broken. His blood shed. And so we come having reflected upon God's word and have the joy of celebrating with one another and spiritually with Christ that he's been purch- he has purchased us and set us free by his great work on our behalf. One of the joys we have as God's covenant family, for those of us who've been reconciled to God in Christ Jesus because of what he has accomplished in giving us new life by his death and resurrection, we're given the great privilege of joining with Christ and his people in communion. Through the bread and the cup, we remember his death in the past. We participate with him in life today and we look forward to the great feast that we will share with him forever in heaven because we too, because Christ has been raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead. And through this means of grace, the Lord is providing us with an opportunity to be strengthened and nourished and grown in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper, which we will partake together, is an ordinance of the church. And so the recipients of the Lord's Supper are only those who are part of Christ's body. If you've repented of sin in your life, if you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of your soul, then we welcome you, invite you, and encourage you to partake. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are currently in open rebellion against God in unrepentant sin, if you are under the discipline of a local church, then you should not partake of this meal. To do so would be to eat and drink further condemnation upon yourself. Now in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul urges the church to examine themselves before and while taking communion. As a covenant community of God's people, we are to seek to come to the table reconciled to one another just as we are reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we loving one another? 
Are we reconciling our differences with one another in the way that Christ has called us to? To share in communion with Christ and with one another, we have to strive for unity and peace among ourselves as the body of Christ. So we need to take a moment for preparation silently, and then we will pray and eat and drink together.